What pleases you? What brings you joy? When I was a little boy, my mother has told me that I was so very pleased to spend my time out in the backyard playing with a couple of sticks. Nowadays, it takes a bit more than sticks to please me. But I wonder, am I still far too easily pleased? And I would suggest that you ask yourself that same question. Are you far too easily pleased? C.S. Lewis helps us think about this question in these words that he penned. Quote, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, writes Lewis. Thankfully, David in Psalm 24 gives us the remedy for being far too easily pleased with the people and things of this world. The occasion for King David writing Psalm 24 was the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. You may remember from 1 Samuel chapter 5, we learned the Philistines captured the Ark. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the story is told of King David going and recapturing the ark and bringing it back to Jerusalem where it would be placed in the tabernacle on top of Mount Zion. Psalm 24 is a majestic psalm. It is a, a hymn, a processional hymn that has three stanzas focused on the creator, the redeemer, and the king. This psalm has notes of majesty and victory and power and glory. The Ark of the Covenant for ancient Israel represented God's presence with them. So King David calls us to find our infinite joy in the Creator, in the Redeemer, in the king and when our joy is founded and rooted in him we will not be so easily pleased with the people and things of this world before i read psalm 24 let us pray god our father we have joy in you but we also struggle with our joy being founded and rooted in you. And so I pray as we think about the words of this psalm spoken so long ago that it might have fresh meaning to us today and through it, O Holy Spirit, that you would be pleased to apply the very word of God to us, that we would overflow with joy, joy in him, the creator, the redeemer, 
the King. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn to Psalm 24 in your Bibles and read along as I read on our behalf. God's word for God's people. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the soul. And, O Holy Spirit, may you come. And apply your word to our hearts even today that our souls might be revived and overflowed with joy. And so today we want to look at Psalm 24 and we will be looking at the three stanzas as here David reflects on the creator, the redeemer, and the king. You'll find a sermon outline in your bulletin. And so we want to look at the first reason for joy is the creator. And we will not be so easily pleased with God's creatures, the things that he has created, the people that he provides for relationships with us when our joy is rooted and founded in the creator and the owner of all. David begins this psalm in verse 1 with God's ownership and specifically God's ownership of the dry land where man dwells. Yes, God owns the seas, God owns all, but the focus of this is the dry land where men dwell. He says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Then in verse 2 he gives the reason why God has ownership over all. He has founded it and established it. He is the creator. We have to ask the question. In light of the fact that this psalm was penned to celebrate the Ark of the Covenant being brought into Jerusalem, why does God begin, or why does David begin with God as creator? The Ark represented God's presence in the midst of his people, but God's dominion, God's rule extends not just to Jerusalem, not just to Israel, but over all. He owns all. His dominion extends over all. I'm reminded of the words of Abraham Kuyper, who served as the prime minister of the Netherlands, 1901 to 1905. Kuyper was a journalist and he was a theologian, and he said this, I quote, there is not a square inch 
in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mind, end quote. Mind, it's all God's because he created it, the creator and the owner. Paul quotes Psalm 24, verse 1 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 26. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And Paul's point is to stress that because of God's ownership over all, God's ownership over the very food that we eat and the drink that we sip, because of that, this means we are to enjoy what God has provided for us without any misgivings. Paul concludes that section with these famous words in chapter 10, verse 31 of 1 Corinthians. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. He's the creator of all. He's the owner of all. And he is so good to provide his creatures, that which he has created, that we might enjoy them. A beautiful sunset is God's. Saw one last night driving out to the Butkowskis. And as we look at the beautiful sunset and we enjoy it and we give praise to God, he is pleased. Good food and drink are his and when we partake of them and credit God for them, he delights over us. Relationships are his. And when we express our joy with one another and we come together like we are doing now and we'll do this evening and fellowship together and thank God for the privilege of having companionship, he is pleased. Rest is God's. And he calls us to rest and to celebrate and anticipate that eternal rest that we will have with him in heaven. Work is his, play is his, ministry is his, worship is his. He provides these good gifts for us that we would have joy in them, but more that our joy would be rooted in him, the giver of every good and perfect gift, the provider of his creatures for our enjoyment. He created them. He owns them. And our joy ultimately should be rooted not in the creature, but in the creator. I remember purchasing a silver nativity scene when Ray and I were in Jerusalem some years ago. And the artist, the guy who actually crafted that, was there at the booth. And I was able to talk with him. And, of course, he was delighted to sell me <laughs> one of these nativity scenes. Probably had 0.01% silver in it, but nonetheless, it had his name imprinted on the bottom, and that little nativity scene gave me joy, but my joy was enhanced very much because I knew the one who made it. I talked with him. How much more should our joy be rooted in the one who made it all, in the one who owns it all, in the one who gives it to us to enjoy? Our joy is rooted in him. And I was recently overcome with this one morning as I was just thinking about all the blessings that God has given me. And I began to list them. I began to just in prayer just list them out and say, God, thank you 
And I think one of the best ways that we can keep rooting our joy in God, rooting our joy in the creator and honor of all, is to count our blessings, name them one by one, and give thanks to God for them. There is nothing like going to God and saying, God, thank you for my family. Thank you for my church. Thank you for my job. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's the creator. He's the owner. He's the one that provides for us. The first reason for joy is the creator and owner. The remedy for being far too pleased with the things of this world is to continually root our joy in the one who has created it all, who owns it all, has mastery and dominion over all, and who provides his creatures, those things that he has created, that we might enjoy them, but more, that we might look to the giver of every good and perfect gift and find our joy flowing from him. Secondly, we are to have joy in the Redeemer. Verse 5 notes and specifies the God of our, his salvation. We will not be far too easily pleased with the things of this life when we find our joy in the Redeemer. In verses 3 through 6, I understand David's words to ultimately be pointing to the work of of the Redeemer, Jesus. God calls us to come before him in worship, to seek his face, verse 6. And he not only calls us to come before him, he not only calls us to seek him, but he provides a way, get this, he provides a way for sinners to come before holy God and to worship him, to live before him, to come into his presence, without fear. One of the holiest places of modern day Judaism is the western portion of the Temple Mount, the base of the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. It is <coughs> excuse me, composed of large stones and these stones date back to the time of King Solomon's temple. It was a special privilege for me to be able to not only stand before those ancient stones, but to reach out and touch them. <laughs> but before I was allowed in to what is called the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, one of the holiest places of modern day Judaism, I had to go through a little process of ceremonial washing. And so I was directed to a fountain of running water. And I put my hands under the running water and ceremonially washed my hands, the clean water coming and washing the filth away. And then I was fit. Then I was worthy to enter the Wailing Wall area and stand before those stones. What makes us worthy 
not to stand before stones, but to stand before holy God. That ceremonial washing experience really reminded me that no amount of water can cleanse me enough to make me fit to stand before God. And that little ceremonial washing experience caused me to rejoice that God has cleansed me. He's called me to come before him and he's provided a way of cleansing that I might stand before him and not be judged. Psalm 24 and verse 3 asks the question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Meaning, who is worthy, who is fit to come before God and worship? And verse 4, David answers this. He says, the one who has, a, who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, if he just said he who has clean hands, then we might think, okay, well, maybe that ceremonial washing business is enough. But he didn't say that. He said he who has clean hands and, I would say, even as important, if not more important, a clean heart. And here David links the outward action with the inward state of a person with regards to what makes a person fit to come before him. And the verse gives a picture of the significance of this. Such a person, in verse 4, that has clean hands and a pure heart truly does not lift up his soul to what is false, that is to say commit idolatry. Why? Because inwardly the affections of his heart are for God and God alone. And his outward actions demonstrate that. He does not lift up his soul. He does not shift his affections from God to an idol. And the same can be said for bearing false witness. The one who is fit to ascend the hill and stand before God is the one has, who has a heart that is fit, a heart that has been changed, that inward transformation that only God can do in regeneration. And more, we find this person not only has, needs to have a clean hands and a pure heart, but that we read a note of righteousness here. Verses 3 and 4. Here David says that the person is blessed of God. Verse 5a. So let me put this together. Those in verses 3 and 4 that are blessed of God, verse 5a, are those who have received righteousness from the God of his salvation. And the righteousness to which David refers here is not self-righteousness. It's not something that we can manufacture. It's not something that is based on our performance. No, it is righteous. It is the righteousness of God. It is a righteousness that is received by faith. It is the perfect righteousness of Christ that is credited to us in justification. Philippians 3.9 Paul speaks about being found in him, in Christ, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Ceremonial washing and outward obedience of the commandments have a place, but they are not enough to deal with our sin and our unrighteousness. It takes a redeemer. It takes the God of our salvation doing something to cleanse our hearts, to change our hearts, to pardon us from the guilt of sin, to deal with our unrighteousness by bestowing a perfect righteousness on us, a righteousness that is of God, not of us, a righteousness that is by faith, not by works. This is the doctrine of justification where God declares us ju just, where God declares us fit to come before him because of what Christ has done. In verse 6, David exclaims, such is the person who seek the face of God. And so what is the character of that generation that seeks the face of God to which David was referring? And what is the character of our generation today Christians in our day that are seeking the face of God. I would say the same is true for both groups, for them then and for us now. Even as the generation of David's day that sought the face of God looked ahead for the Redeemer, Jesus, we look back. But what makes that Old Testament worshiper fit to ascend the hill to stand in God's presence is the same. God making a way. The God of our salvation making a way for us to stand in his presence. Our continual struggle with sin in and of itself disqualifies us from ascending the hill and from standing in God's presence. Dan read from Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Isaiah is caught up in, into the heavenly throne room where he is there standing in the presence of holy God. <laughs> and the experience is terrifying. It is awesome. It is fearful. In verse 5, it was so terrifying to Isaiah, he cries out, woe is me, I am undone. He calls judgment upon himself because of his unworthiness to be in that place before holy God. He was unfit. But we also see that God provided a way in verses 6 and 7 God's remedy was for the, the seraphim to take a coal from the altar and to apply it to Isaiah's lips. And in verse 7 we read, And he touched my mouth, Isaiah said. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And this is my point. We would be perpetually stuck in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5, think about that. We would be perpetually stuck 
like Isaiah in verse 5 before holy God in verses 1, four, one through 4. Terrified to be in his presence. Undone, continually calling judgment upon ourselves. But, verses 6 and 7, by his rich grace, he has dealt with our sin. We have pardon from guilt. He has dealt with our unrighteousness. We are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. We are beckoned to come before God, and he provides a way, the way for us to come on the merits of Christ Jesus. We need to think about that. We will not be far too easily pleased with the people and things of this life, including our sin, when we consider the price for our pardon and the privilege of being accepted because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And this is true every day, but especially as we celebrate the incarnation of God giving us the gift of Christ, God providing a way for his people to come into his presence. Listen to these scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God not only calls us to come before him, but he provides the way for our sin to be dealt with. He provides a righteousness that is perfect whereby we are accepted. And he even adopts us as his children, that we come before him, not we do come before him of citizens, but we come before him first and foremost as sons and daughters. Think about that. When you consider your joy being far too small, placed on the things of this world, when our infinite joy is offered to us in the Redeemer, we, when we find our joy in the Redeemer, we will not be far too easily pleased with the things of this life. And now for our third and final point, the third stanza of this uh, great and awesome hymn that we have before us today, Joy in the King. A third reason for joy is this King of glory, the King of glory who is present with his people. Look at verses 7 through 10. And in particular, verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The ancient city of Jerusalem was in David's day, and by the way, in our day, a city surrounded by a wall. 
Now, the current wall around the city of Jerusalem was built in A.D. 1537 to A.D. 1541. Sultan Suleiman I desired to see the ruined city wall of Jerusalem rebuilt, and he had it rebuilt. The Damascus Gate is one of the seven open gates around that great city today. And on one occasion, I had the great privilege of actually walking in and out of that gate and just standing there in the midst of that gate, just looking up at it. It's the main gate in the current city wall of Jerusalem. It's the most ornate gate that is open today. And I was just astounded how massive this gate is. Even today, it has these massive doors and I was just thinking, there is no way in the world this gate can be lifted up. These doors can be so open. Why, it would take a wrecking ball uh, to do any of that. How does Psalm 24 describe what happens when the king of glory approaches the gate and the door? How does Psalm 24 describe the Ark of the Covenant that represents covenant God, the Lord, coming to dwell, represented by the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of his people, there on top of Mount Zion, there in the tabernacle? Verse 24 tells us the King of Glory is so glorious, so majestic figuratively, that he can't fit through that man-made gate. The event foreshadows the king of glory incarnate passing through that gate on the day of his triumphal entry as we read in Matthew 21 and Luke 19 as Jesus came to the Mount of Olives triumphantly processing with the shouts of Hosanna and he passed through what tradition tells us is the golden gate at the time that was, was opened. The king of glory incarnate passed through that gate. Why did he enter that city on that triumphal entry day, that Palm Sunday day, for one purpose, the purpose that we've just considered. It is the, it is the purpose of Jesus redeeming elect sinners and reconciling them to God. His humiliation on Friday set the stage for his exaltation on that first resurrection mourn three days later where he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and this psalm also anticipates not only the king of glory coming in the incarnation the king of glory and the person of jesus christ passing through the gate but the king of glory coming again at the second coming to bring consummation to all the king of glory came as the mighty warrior who won the battle, who triumphed over sin, over death, who, by the way, triumphs over you and me, all his enemies and our enemies. The great miracle... <clears throat> is not a stone gate and wooden doors being lifted up and open wide. That would be a miracle, no doubt. 
But the real miracle is a stone heart being transformed and open wide for the King of glory to come and reign forever. One of my theological pet peeves is this idea of surrender. Now, the pet peeviness of this, I think that's a new word, is not that we surrender, we don't surrender, but that the idea that we have to surrender before Jesus can do anything. That would be like a nation saying, okay, I've got to surrender first before the mightier nation can come and conquer them. No, the mightier nation can just come and conquer them. It doesn't matter if they surrender or not. And that's the point of this. We don't surrender so Jesus can come and conquer us. He conquers us. <laughs> he defeats our rebellious heart. He conquers us. He conquers sin. He conquers Satan. He conquers all his enemies. He conquers all our enemies. He wins. He conquers. He fights the battles. And we respond by surrendering, by desiring the conquering king to come and reign in our hearts. He has crushed our rebellion. He has won the victory. He has conquered us. And therefore, we surrender. So we'll sing in a moment. Redeemer, come. I open wide my heart to thee. Here, Lord, abide. Let me thy inner presence fill. Thy grace and love in me reveal. So come, my sovereign, enter in. Let new and nobler life begin. The Holy Spirit guide us on until the glorious crown be won. The remedy for being far too pleased with the things of this world is to place our joy in the creator and owner of all. Yes, we're to enjoy his good gifts, his creatures, but our joy is to be founded in him. When we place our joy in the Redeemer, we find that we're not so easily pleased with the things of this world because we know that Jesus has paid the price for the guilt of our sin and he has clothed us with a perfect righteousness and we don't live in Isaiah 1 through 5 only. We live in Isaiah 1 through 7, 6 and 7, salvation, pardon from the guilt of sin. We're accepted as righteous before God. And when we put our joy in the king of glory, we put our joy in the one who is mighty and strong, who has conquered us, who has won the victory, who is coming again to bring us home to live and dwell with him forever. I would submit to you that we are far too easily pleased with the things of this world, but when our joy is rooted in the creator and owner, the redeemer and the king, we find 
infinite joy. Let us pray. God, our Father, would you so work in our lives today that we would found and receive and experience that joy that can only come from you, the creator of all, the owner, the redeemer, who has not only called us to come into your presence, but you provided the way, Jesus, and that our joy would be rooted in the king of glory, the one who is majestic over all and who reigns and rules and who is coming again to establish his eternal kingdom. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.